Well, I hope very much that all of you have had a very blessed time over the Christmas season. I don't know about you, um, but somehow it already seems to be uh, receding into the distance, even though it was only a couple of days ago that we finally managed to unwrap the last of little Esther's first Christmas present mountain. She certainly won't be lacking for very much on the toy and book front this coming year. Much of what Lee and I um, have shared with you all, um, and Peter as well, of course, um, in our various services uh, in the Advent run-up to Christmas Day and Christmas itself, um, focused not just on the gifts of the Magi to the Christ child, uh, or on the gifts that we give to one another uh, in remembrance of those first Christmas gifts but focused on Jesus as God's great gift, given to the whole world, uh, that we might be reconciled once again to our Heavenly Father. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to live amongst us as a man, a fully human individual, and yet a human being who was um, being also fully divine without sin. Well, I don't know about you, um, but if I'm really honest with myself, if this is the case, that Jesus was utterly without sin, as we uh, say it is, as we believe it is, I've always rather struggled with our gospel reading this morning. How can Jesus be sinless if he behaves towards his parents in the way in which St. Luke reports? When I was eight years old, I gave my parents something of a similar experience to the one Mary and Joseph underwent in Luke's account. Mine was in circumstances that reflect rather less well on me than those in which Jesus found himself. Christ was lost by his parents since he'd chosen to spend time discussing the scriptures with the teachers of the law in the temple courts. I, on the other hand, was lost by my parents, since I'd gone off in a huff at not being allowed to spend my holiday pocket money in a castle gift shop. Nevertheless, even though I had only disappeared for an hour or so, the strength of the memory of the, uh, with hindsight, I think, thoroughly deserved ear bashing that I received from my mum and dad uh, must be a fair indication of the anxiety that I caused them. How much more panic must Jesus have caused his parents, lost for three whole days and nights in a city that would doubtless have seemed huge and intimidating to all of them coming from a tiny town in Galilee? Regardless of Jesus' explanation to them that he had to be in his father's house, we can only imagine the telling off that he must have received from his parents. Theologically, for Jesus to be sinless in all of this, uh, albeit uh, perhaps not the most uh, emotionally aware of how his mother might react uh, when uh, he finally was found by them, 
I can only presume that the, the logic, if you like, of this must be that his parents were the ones who mislaid him in the first place. And all he was doing was being in the place where it was most natural for him to be, and therefore most natural for his parents to find him, spending time with his heavenly father and with those who passed their days following and serving the Lord in Jerusalem's temple precincts. Nevertheless, we can see in Mary's language the anguish and the bemusement that Jesus must have caused her and Joseph by his actions, even if the initial lapse may have been theirs. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And in the next verse, Luke's observation that Mary and Joseph did not understand what Jesus was saying to them. Anguish and bemusement. However, leaving emotions to one side for a moment, it's important uh, to note that this is an episode, uh, that this uh, episode in the temple is a key uh, inflection point in Luke's gospel. In it are contained Jesus' first words, the words reported to us, of course, that is. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? There are only two occasions between the nativity on the one hand and Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, which marks the very start of his public ministry. There are only two occasions uh, in which we encounter him in Luke's gospel. The first is at uh, Christ's presentation at the temple as a tiny infant at which Simeon and Anna, two devout and faithful worshippers, declare over him the divine task and the ministry into which he's been born and that he's come to fulfil. And the second is our reading today, in which Christ himself affirms these declarations that he'd been made over him by Simeon and by Anna. And by by those Israelite prophets uh, who came many centuries before him as well. Jesus, so secure in his knowledge of God and of the law, that he astonishes the temple teachers with his understanding and answers to their questions, demonstrates in his words and his actions that God is at work here. He's fulfilling through and in the person of Jesus the words of Simeon and the words of Anna and of many before them too. Although Jesus was only 12, the age at which Jewish boys undertook their bar mitzvah ceremony uh, symbolizing their passage from boy to man. Here Jesus demonstrates both godliness way beyond his years as he returns home uh, to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man and an awareness within of precisely who he is and the task that uh, as Simeon and Anna declared he the Messiah had come to fulfill 
but I think it's uh, today's pairing in the Church of England's lectionary, its, its calendar of Bible readings appointed uh, throughout the year. I think it's today's pairing of this gospel passage with our Old Testament reading from the first book of Samuel that especially brings out, for me at least, the main point of what I want to say to you all this morning. The echo is perhaps almost too obvious. Hannah had given her firstborn, Samuel, to the service of the Lord in thanks for him answering her prayer for a child after years of barrenness. Gloriously, the Lord has continued to give Hannah and and Elkanah five more offspring after Samuel left the family. Samuel is now in the temple, his devotion to the service of the Lord a startling contrast to uh, the corruption of the sons of Eli, the high priest, uh, whom he is serving alongside. So Hannah and Elkanah, when they go to perform their annual Passover sacrifices in the temple, they see an all-too-brief, once-a-year snapshot of their son. And almost identically to the youthful Jesus in Luke's account, Samuel is described as continuing to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Hannah and Mary, two mothers whose sons are before them in the temple. Two mothers who have both heard God's call and have followed his will. Two mothers who have celebrated both doing precisely this and also the blessings of God that have come to them as they have done so. Hannah, in her prayer earlier in the same chapter of this first book of Samuel uh, as today's reading, And Mary in the Magnificat, her song at the end of chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. But alongside the obedience and the praises of God is pain and sacrifice. Hannah's making of a new tiny robe each year for Samuel. Every year that she and Elkanah go to the temple is both beautiful and motherly but it's also heartbreakingly poignant this is all that from year to year she can do practically for her firstborn son Mary like Joseph uh, doesn't appear yet to have registered what the ultimate significance of her declaration to the angel Gabriel. Uh, I am the Lord's servant. May your words to me be fulfilled. As after the visit of the shepherds to the stable, following this particular fraught reunion with Jesus in Jerusalem, Luke tells us that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. It's as if she can see before herself something concerning her beloved son, 
but she doesn't quite know what it is yet. She can't bring it into focus, if you like. The painters of the Renaissance often beautifully depicted this tension between the present moment, uh, the present joy, and the future pain as they showed the baby Jesus lying draped across new mother Mary's lap. The awfulness of these portraits, which their viewers would pick up straight away, was the direct echo in this nativity pose of the Mary of 33 years later, in what is known as a pietà, a pity, literally, in Italian with the body of her dead son brought down from the cross, now lying broken across her lap, just as he had done, asleep but full of life, as this tiny infant. So, after marking this wondrous gift of the Christ child that we've been able to celebrate so joyfully, Um, possibly over-indulgently over the past few days. I believe that these stories of Hannah and of Mary give us a very helpful and healthy counterpoint in our Christian journey. Yes, both women receive the wholly unexpected gift of a son. In Hannah's case, one uh, who had been wept for and prayed for for years and years. In Mary's case, born to be the ultimate gift to us all. But at the same time, following God's will in their lives is for these two new mothers deeply costly. There is, as in the title of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian's famous book, A Cost of Discipleship. I'm not for a moment suggesting that the sorts of things that we may sense Jesus asking us to lay aside in our lives, or indeed also take up in our lives in his service, may be remotely as costly as they were for Hannah and Mary. However, perhaps especially as we've been soaking over the Christmas period in the message of the gift of Jesus to each and every one of us. It's worth reminding ourselves that there is a real cost to following Jesus too. In far too many countries of the world, the cost is indeed still to put one's life and potentially the lives of others close to one in serious danger for spreading the message of the gospel. Yes, the astounding gift of Jesus, born, died, and risen, transforms our lives. But we're also called by Jesus to be obedient, obedient to his calling on our lives, and in so doing, to pay a cost, to be sacrificial in the way in which we live for his sake, and for the sake of his kingdom. As we approach the new year, how will you and I 
follow God's will anew in our life, in our family potentially, in our workplace even, for those of us to whom that applies. What will you change in your life and I in mine to make more room for God? To become more involved in a new area of ministry perhaps for you personally? What will you and what will I sacrifice in order that God's will be done and he will be glorified? What possessions or experiences or holidays uh, maybe will you and will I sacrifice this year in order that through us God's will will be done and his kingdom will be built even if it's only just that little bit more here on earth. What will the cost of discipleship be for me and for you? Let's sit quietly and reflect on this for a moment. And then I'll pray. Lord God, the Magi brought myrrh, frankincense, and gold. Lord, we have nothing of our own to bring, since all that we have is but a gift from you. But we bring you what you have given, our lives for your life. Amen.